Why do they wear shoes up there? Ah, oh, no. That's a sensible question, and I will answer it. But in order to do so, I must first tell you a secret. Or I once saw the Queen's feet. Without her shoes? Yes, without her shoes. No, did you? How was it? Never you mind how it was. She didn't know I saw them. And what do you think? They had toes. Toes? What's that? You may well ask. I should never have known if I had not seen the Queen's feet. Just imagine, the ends of her feet were split up into five or six thin pieces. Oh, horrid! How could the king have fallen in love with her? You forget that she wore shoes. That is just why she wore them. That is why all the men, and women too upstairs, wear shoes. They can't bear the sight of their own feet without them. Ah, now I understand. If ever you wish for shoes again, Helfer, I'll hit your feet. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome. <clears throat> Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others, such as, for instance, George MacDonald, discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of English and Clueless Minor of Literary Passages. And joining me today, we have Annika Smith and Logan Huggins. Annika is one of the co-founders of the Inklings Variety Hour. And yeah. Logan Huggins is our amazing producer who has caused the stellar uptick in sound quality in the show. In sound the show, quality. In the sound show. quality. Welcome to both of you. Uh, how are you all doing? Doing great. So glad to see you all. Excited that we have awesome sound now. It's just a whole different world here on the Inklings Variety Hour. Yeah, I'm excited to be back. Somehow you keep inviting me back. We must be doing something right. And I have my cement shoes on, so I'm ready to rock and roll. Good. Good. Yeah, it's important. I hope everybody and, and you listeners too have also worn your hardest shoes because apparently when it comes to matters of life and death in the mountains, when you're fighting with goblins, there's nothing more important than having a pair of good, strong shoes. Um, and I feel like if I were more creative, I'd insert an ad-libbed commercial here for steel-toed boots or something like that. I'll see what I can come up with. Sounds good. Both. Are your feet too soft and squishy? need to add some weight to your gait? From the makers of shoes. Try boots. Feeling self-conscious about the number of toes you have? Try boots. Planning on doing battle with a horde of hobgoblin royalty? Try boots. Side effects may include fever, chills, aggravation, trench foot, and spontaneous teleportation to the distant past. Wherever I go, I know. I'll be ready with my boots. Ask your doctor if boots are right for you. 
You could do um, hobnailed boots from a song on the White Album, The Beatles. It was hobnailed boots, lying all the time while his hands are busy. You know the song. No, yeah. I don't. Yeah, the title I, uh, uh, yeah, Happiness is a warm yeah. gun. There Happiness. we go. There it is. Yeah. Now, George MacDonald was never a member of the Inklings, but he had a tremendous influence on both Lewis and Tolkien, as well as others. Very famously, reading MacDonald's Fantasties is what baptized the imagination of young Jack Lewis before his conversion to Christianity. Despite this, The Princess and the Goblin may be MacDonald's best-known work, and is certainly more accessible. The Princess and the Goblin was published in book form in 1872, after being published as a serial in the children's magazine Good Words for the Young, which is just a very catchy title for a magazine. <laughs> Caught off the presses in Victorian England, right? That's right, Good that's words right. For the young. It, it reminds me of all those other 18th and 17th century books that are often just exactly what they are. It's like <laughs> rules for etiquette for young women, 12 to 14. Yeah. And it's like rules for living young men, 14 to 16. And yeah, very dry. But at least you knew what you were getting. You could judge that's a book right. by its cover back then. Yeah, that's right. So not only was the Princess and the Goblin known and well regarded by the Inklings, but it's been despite a fall off in McDonald's reputation after his death, the book has been generally influential on many other writers, such as G.K. Chesterton, who said about the book, I, for one, can really testify to a book that has made a difference to my whole existence, which helped me to see things in a certain way from the start, a vision of things which even so real a revolution as a change of religious allegiance has substantially only crowned and confirmed. Of all the stories I have read, including even all the novels of the same novelist, it remains the most real, the most realistic, in the exact sense of the phrase, the most like life. It is called The Princess and the Goblin and is by George MacDonald. So MacDonald was not an inkling, but he was very important to at least Lewis and Tolkien, as well as people like Chesterton, who himself influenced Lewis. Do you all see, though, Logan and Annika, any images or motifs in The Princess and the Goblin that seem familiar to you after having read as much of the Inklings work as you have? So I think for the thing that sticks out, and this is about George MacDonald overall, as well as the sense of Zengzucht the really strong spell casting, I guess he does when like he has the passage where he talks about flowers of such odors when he's describing the rose fire as she had never smelled before, which is a direct line to C.S. Lewis and the weight of glory and how he's talking about how Zengzucht is like hearing news from a country you've never visited and trying to remember the smell of a, a perfume you've never you've never smelled or a song you've never heard and trying to remember the melody. Uh, that same sort of enchanting the evocative nature of the symbols used in George MacDonald and how clearly it influenced Lewis and Tolkien. I love it so much because it's yeah. it's like finding the source material, right? Like finding the artist who influenced your favorite band and also influenced these other bands you really like and knowing where they got it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, because so much of what I had always thought was original to right. 
The Inklings trickles down from George McDonald. And I'd love to talk yeah. with a uh, George McDonald scholar. So if there are any listening, please do write in uh, about where McDonald was getting it from, right? Was it German romanticism? Was it Presbyterianism? Unlikely as that seems? <laughs> was it like Celtic Christianity? What was it? I think it's so interesting that we're talking about Princess and Goblin in this season of the show, because we've hit on so many of these similar notes through the previous series of this season. In Prince Caspian, we had we spent so much time talking about the same thing Annika mentioned of just the re-enchantment of the world, just Narnia itself going back to its roots, going back to its sort of I use that quotations on this, but like the Christian mythicism of like mm-hmm. the supernatural being around us in nature and how C.S. Lewis draws us into that realm and uh, the re-enchantment of nature and so many different things. There's so many connections between Prince Caspian and Princess and the Goblin. And even throughout our earlier episodes on Smith of Wood Major, and even I think there's throughout Descent into Hell, there's so many striking allusions and clever imagery. And it, it all calls you to sort of think outside of our sort of modern world of, you know, sticks and stones. It calls us to look up. It calls us to look out and see eternal things in this finite world that we find ourselves in, which I, I really love that. There's so many little connection dots. Something that got my attention right away was the tone of the narrator in Princess and the Goblin. I remember mentioning this when we talked about mm. Prince Caspian, how throughout all the Narnia books, it's as if you're sitting at a fireside with C.S. Lewis and he's like telling you and some children at his feet the story about Narnia. He like interjects yeah. himself as the narrator a whole bunch. And I see that so much throughout Princess and the Goblin too. The narrator is a very present, like Irene was a good princess and this is how princesses should be. And this is not, he's, <laughs> he's constantly, he's constantly like stepping in and giving us a little bit of information here, background here. And I love that because again, it's so warm and welcoming and it, it brings you in. And I imagine as a child too, it just makes you feel even more enraptured with the world that he's, the story that he's telling. So I, I found that the tone and the presence of the narrator is very similar similar to the Narnia books, which I, I found really fun. Yeah, yeah. The Hobbit too, right? Um, mm. I mean, oh, yeah. Tolkien later didn't like that, but he was okay with being a little more influenced by George MacDonald earlier on. There's a real like sort of editorializing, I'm telling this story to you children kind of voice for sure. For me, even some of the motifs, like the giant unexplored house, Irene mm. being bored during a rainy day and finding this mm-hmm. magical part of the house that leads to something that the people that she loves, such as Ludi, don't believe her about her mm-hmm. big old great old grandmother that leads to a quarrel and then later on i don't know if we'll get to this uh this time but later on one of the other people she quarrels with curdy gets a very professor kirk like admonition from his mother you know about well why don't you believe her she's not the type to tell lies uh, so yeah that, all of that i wouldn't have known that lewis hadn't come up with that whole motif himself because yeah. he's so thoroughly makes it his own but but it's definitely here in the in the pattern of this book right just on that note i, yeah. I love that you bring that up because yeah with c.s lewis throughout all of his books and all the ones that i really enjoy he makes the supernatural seem so normal he always draws me to see that in the real world i mean he re-enchants my vision of reality in that sense and so it's funny to see mcdonald doing that same thing in his story of irene's telling the truth even though what she says is ridiculous quote unquote unscientific it's it doesn't make any reasonable sense but it's the truth and this is the reality that she's seen and that this is what actually is happening it's just she has to have people believe her despite how ridiculous it is it, because the ridiculous turns out to be true yeah <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And there's also the goblins themselves, right? Which are 
picked up on by Tolkien in The Hobbit and definitely yep. imported into The Hobbit. And later on, he changes them to orcs and does all these other things with them. And Cora and I talked about that last episode. But yeah, even the attention to their feet, right? Remember how in <laughs> Tolkien, they put on special shoes so as not to be heard when they come up behind you? Tolkien wrote a poem called Goblin Feet. It was one of his early poems and it's really bad. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he wrote it for his wife to be. So, you know, that's that's uh, yeah. how that goes. Very <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah. interesting too. The um, so Lewis didn't use goblins per se, but he used the benefiting from overhearing the enemy, right? Mm, and mm-hmm. what you discover and trying to decipher from their point of view the really terrible thing that's going to happen. Listening to the goblins is like reading screw tape and intercepting that letter and being like, okay, your king is really this horrible tyrant. You speak in this weird bureaucratic language that's hard and dense and obscures rather than reveals and it's not as on the nose as goblin feet but i I think lewis drew a lot there covered the book we went up to around chapter eight or so so just for the benefit of listeners who are the goblins in this story well the goblins are a race of people that through many years of oppressive tax from what we understand they fled the kingdom of humans in the story and they sort of made the residence in the mountains in the mines on deep underground where there's not much sunlight not much water and uh, slowly throughout the generations became a little bit more deformed, a little bit grotesque, but all that time still resenting the surface dwellers, still resenting the king. Throughout that time, they've slowly devolved into sort of a, they still have kings and queens. Everything about them morphed into sort of grotesque. Even the creatures that they sort of surround themselves with become morphed and elongated and deformed. They come out at night, like most goblins do, they pester the surface dwellers, they uh, harass their sheep and their goats and whatnot, and, and uh, they always try to cause mischief. That's sort of a general gist of the goblins. Yes. This is called the princess and the goblin. Hmm. Why? Why? Why are not the princess and the goblins? <laughs> uh, this is something I've been like, should I even ask this? Is this? But do you all have any idea why it's called the princess and the goblin? I mean, is it because there is one pet goblin who has set his, like, the whole plan, right, to take her? The other goblins are all under his control, and they also think they're going to benefit by destroying the kingdom and taking back what they view as rightfully theirs. But the scheme is to kidnap the princess. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess that could be. If you could rename Princess and the Goblin, what would you name it to? Princess and the Goblins. Yeah, they're better than that. Because it's a bunch of goblins. Like, they're all kind of... But isn't, isn't there more than one princess, too? Um, Yeah, yeah. So now it's princesses and goblins. <laughs> Both have plural. <laughs> yeah. Both are plural. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that. But it's about Princess Irene, right? So let's talk about her. Who is Princess Irene. Well, she lives in a castle that is built almost like at the side of a mountain in this sort of wild, more rural, remote part of the kingdom. And her father is the king. He loves her very much, but has to go around taking care because he has poor administrators. He's very busy. And meanwhile, Princess Irene is watched over by a nurse and attended to by guards. 
Um, her mother has died and it's very sad, but she lives a generally happy young princess life. And she's about eight years old. And I like the way yeah. McDonald says it. She's eight years old, but she grows up very fast throughout the story. So I like the yeah. way he phrased that. Yeah. Yeah, they all do. <laughs> Except for the great grandmother. Princess runs into this big great grandmother and we talked a good deal about her two episodes ago yeah she's she's an old lady who looks young but has silvery hair associated with the moon that most people in the castle slash house where irene lives don't know about but irene finds her and she seems to always know exactly what irene needs you know, tells her her name's irene too she eats Pigeon eggs uses her pigeons almost as sort of messengers, right? She's she's kind of the closest thing to sort of a almost god figure, whether she is god in the way that Aslan is or not is another question. Yeah, she's also the main conflicts that um, Irene has with people she loves mm -hmm. have to do with them not believing her when she tells them about her great old grandmother that she's found through going up a secret stair, such as Ludi. Who is Ludi? Ludi is the princess's nurse. And uh, we don't know a ton about Ludi, but from what we can tell about Ludi, she is sort of, I wouldn't say a busybody, but she's very much a sort of, she loves the princess dearly. She loves taking care of the princess. But when it comes to sort of believing the princess's story about her big, old, great, great, big grandmother, she just doesn't believe it at all. She just thinks it's either nonsense. And uh, the grandmother later talks about Ludi and says, Ludi's the type of person to, if she could even see me, she would wake up the next day and half of it she was convinced herself was a dream, half of it she'll convince herself she just should just forget about it. So she's sort of a has to see it to believe it, no nonsense sort of nanny, uh, although she does love the princess dearly and uh, she, her and the princess have a good relationship despite that. Yeah, she's really bad at her job. <laughs> <laughs> Like whenever the princess gets lost or something bad happens, the princess is like, oh, Ludi had fallen asleep or Ludi was too long away from the nursery. And yeah, it's it's uh, so so one of the things that happens early on is the goblins almost get them because Ludi and the princess have fallen asleep. And Ludi's mainly mad about the great grandmother because the princess said she was prettier than Ludi. And, uh, <laughs> She's sleeping on the job. She's like, oh, if if we don't get back to the castle, the king, your papa, will certainly, you know, take me away from you. And I don't know that I could bear that, you know, putting all that on uh, on the poor eight-year-old princess. But uh, yeah, she's. Uh, she, I'm not sure what I would do if uh, Ludi was my children's caretaker. The king does have a stern talk with her, mm -hmm. right? Like where she goes away crying yeah, authoritatively yeah. and yeah. is more careful. But I say, I'm a little sympathetic to Ludi because I, if I was the caretaker of the man, character in one of these fairy tale books they're the type of characters that always sneak off and get into mischief and get kidnapped and yep. fall into the mine and whatever they, that's a hard job you got to put that on the job description if you're going to be the nanny and you're going to be the nanny of the main character of a fairy tale book that's just you got to know what you're getting into i'm a little sympathetic to ludy well, you, know, you got to know are you a nanny in a fairy tale book or are you a nanny in a charlotte bronte book and it's going to be very different outcomes yeah, for you i would really love to write and record like a skit of like Ludi's performance review. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. It's like have the king like, oh, Ludi. Nannies always get the short end of the stick because again, yeah, they're mm -hmm. the ones that get yelled at when the main character boy or girl falls into the mystical portal or mm -hmm. finds out that they have the, the blood in them of a god and 
So yeah, yeah, I think between Ludi and Barda, I'm not a big fan of Barda, but still, like that's just a tough job, you know. Yeah, yeah. So they're coming down the mountain. They meet a young, a young minor boy. Who's that minor boy? It's Curdy. It's he's Curdy. whistling. He's singing. He's a 12 year old brave little boy working in the mines all day long. He is all boy, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. I think it's funny that uh, I don't know if George McDonald did this on purpose, but I guess he did because I imagine he wrote this book for boys and girls. So he gives the he gives the girl readers an ideal princess in Irene, and then he gives the boy readers a character to attach to in like the most boy character ever. He's a miner. He gets to stay up as late as he wants. He gets a pickaxe. He gets to go and harass the monsters whenever he wants to. <laughs> I find that interesting. He he like gave the boys and the girls like a character to like connect with or identify with or whatever. So yeah, I think yeah. that's funny. And he because the way to drive goblins off is to rhyme well. If you could do rap battle, that's just as good as like. Like being able to literally battle, right? So Curdy's really good at improvising rhymes. Uh, they sound a little bit like snips and snails and puppy dog tail sort of rhymes, right? Like very rough, but it works and it drives the goblins yeah. off because they can't abide being around people who can make stuff up. I was thinking as I read this, the whole thing where Curdy says, you know, they can't bear singing. And the fact that goblins, the bad guys, are so easily scared away by music reminded me in Tolkien, there are several places in The Lord of the Rings where uh, it's because Aragorn is singing the lay of Luthien. It's like the power of song between Sam and Frodo that dispels the darkness and gives like this moment of light. The idea that there is something very potent in singing is, I think it's one of those re-enchantment sort of things like Logan was talking about, where we know it's true as Christians, but we forget it in our world and have to be re-enchanted with that whole idea. Yeah, that's that's a really good connection. Uh, mm-hmm. In Tolkien, of course, it's like, oh, Elbereth, Gelthoniel, right? And, <laughs> and, and in uh, McDonald's, it's jabber bother smash we'll have it all in a crash jabber smash bother you'll have the worst of the pother right so slightly different tonally but yeah it's the same principle pub singing like a good old pub song can do as much for someone who's like maybe suicidal uh, but surrounded by their friends in that moment to drive a demon away as yeah. a, a beautiful hymn right on i mean well, a, yeah lewis uses the uh, weak to shame the strong you know he uses the not so literate to shame the over-literate all the time. Yep. So I think that theme connects uh, even there as well. As a professor of English literature, I am often shamed by the not-so-literate in my classes. <laughs> After Curdy gets Irene out of some trouble and Irene promises him a kiss. Curdy is mining one night and he overhears a goblin family, which is what we read at the top. Their names are Glump, Podge, and Helfer, their son, talking about the goblin's evil plan as they, like the Huggins family, begin to pack up their things so they can move house, move further away from the miners. They have a- 49ers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Logan, maybe you have some special insight into this being, you know, someone who is moving from California and packing up your things. Um, how do you oh, think gosh. Helfer and, and Podge and Glump feel right now as they are moving? Probably exhausted. 
probably just spent. So uh, no, I I like this section. It reminds me a lot of I know we mentioned it already. The trope of the good guys overhearing the plan before they have to foil it, and uh, yeah, Curdy being able to overhear and uh, eavesdrop over the bad guys talking about their plan, which I always love. I feel like that pops up a lot in the other Inklings writers. I find it interesting because up to this point, we've heard so much about the goblins. McDonald spends so much time describing the goblins and sort of building them up. And we have like a small interaction with one in the shadows when they're walking through the woods. But this Mm -hmm. is our first experience with the goblins. And again, I think it it cracks me up, but it's similar to that section in Prince Caspian. When we're waiting so long for the characters to meet and something to happen, we're forced to listen to a conversation first before we actually see them and have the characters interact. But I find it so funny because, yeah, we hear them talk. And I think you guys mentioned a few episodes ago, as soon as you hear them talk to each other, any kind of like intimidation factor you had sort of gets dropped. You totally have a better sense of like, oh, we see who we're dealing with now. Like it's a it's a really fun, clever way to give you the sense of the character of the goblins yeah i like that i think it's a fun clever way to subvert your expectations a little bit yeah yeah i mean imagine being in a mine in the middle of the night like hearing voices down in the mine and how frightening that would be trying to prepare for the episode i last recorded with cora about the word goblin which was a lot of fun i read story about mines by E.T.A. Hoffman, who wrote The Nutcracker and also The the Sandman. Mm. And he writes this story called The Mines of Falun. And like the main character is just freaked out by mines because you, you go there and it's just infernal. Black as pitch, you see all kinds of things. And there too, they use something supernatural to account for the kinds of like knocking that miners hear when they're down there. And and most like scientific accounts now, they're, they're like, well, that's a certain kind of water pressure of some kind hits these loads uh, a certain way. And that causes miners for generations to think, oh, there's something down here that's leading us to the or but yeah it's an uncanny experience it's just funny to see mcdonald take that uncanny experience and just kind of turn it on its head and have this like group of backwards upside down people who are absurd very clownish he follows them through a hole and through the caverns where he overhears the goblin king talking to a bunch of goblins as well as the chancellor and this is when the guy who he's overheard moving house and talking about feet tells the king that there's a gulf of water near his house which may be helpful in accomplishing one or two of the plans the goblins are hatching which are still very kind of vague about right and then the chancellor says thank you for that information but we really think our plan a is going to succeed and the bunch of water we need mainly for plan b but but you know plan a which the king himself has devised and certainly no one even in his most secret thoughts will imagine that it won't work out that's that's solid that's going to work he doesn't say it in exactly those words curdy hears as much as he can then he comes back and he gets a little bit lost eventually finding his way out and he kind of figures that probably the plan b at least he's not sure what plan a is yet but plan b at least is is to flood the mines and kill the miners it's- it's unfortunate George McDonald back in what 1871 ripped off the 1997 movie Ants by DreamWorks. The same plot device. I'm really disappointed that McDonald would have ripped off that movie that happened 250 years later. That's a big strike for McDonald. That's what he was inspired <laughs> by. I was, well, I was actually going to 
I was wondering just the the title of the ninth chapter being the Hall of the Goblin Palace. Like, what a missed opportunity to be the Hall of the Goblin King and I know. bring in like the pure Gint. I'm not sure when Piergint was written. It may have been uh, the Piergint I think suite. the play was in like 1850s, right? Okay, like, okay. Or 60s, Ibsen? Yeah. What is that? Do, 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 Oh, yeah, yeah. Do, do, do. yeah. yeah the yeah. music's by Grieg, but the play is by Ibsen. Uh, but the Norwegian, okay, again, that northern... It's an irreverent take on a lot of Norwegian folk stories. That was one of the first... I, I may have even talked about this on the uh, podcast before. It was one of the first tapes that I that they had lying around. Like, I was, I was a kid when they still had tapes. We had Motown, we had Weird Al, and then we had the Pier Gint Suite. Um, <laughs> so that just kind of explains my entire personality right there. Um, but Pier Gint Suite is beautiful. But even yeah. now, like I downloaded it and I play it for my girls and they like stomp around and dance. But yeah, that's a bit of a digression, but uh, I think a worthwhile one. The Hall of the Goblin King. Annika, you mentioned the kind of bureaucratic corporatese style that the goblins speak in. At least the chancellor, which, I mean, he is a bureaucrat, so good for him. The information which the worthy glump has given us might have been of considerable import. I mean, it's just so many extra words. At one point he says, wow, his majesty, unwilling to proceed to extremities and well aware that I'm giving him like a loftier voice. He's a goblin, but you know well aware that such measures sooner or later result in violent reactions, has excogitated a more fundamental and comprehensive measure of which I need say no more. Like he, he literally yeah. just told them nothing, yeah. Um, yeah. but use like a full paragraph to do it. It's classic corporatese, bureaucratic speak. Yeah. And I find it just delightful in that sort of adult humor that kids aren't going to get why it's so funny. This guy's using a lot of words to say nothing. Yeah. I, and I love the uh, Andy Minter reading on LibriVox. He gives the chancellor like this kind of like slightly Cockney accent, right? So he's like, oh. has excogitated a more fundamental <laughs> incomprehensive measure. Oh, so it's God. just great. Oh, that's like Eliza Doolittle's dad when he's drunk. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, I know, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the tragedy of it, Eliza. It's easy to say chuck it, but I haven't the nerve. But uh, I don't know the last I don't know the last time you guys have been on LinkedIn, if you've ever been on LinkedIn, the quote unquote professional social network, but it's terrible for that same reason. Cause you'll find a company, you're like, Oh, what's this what does this company do? This sounds cool. And you look into their like business summary and it's like to exceed our customers' satisfaction through excelling the workspace on top of the profit margin of all time and accelerating the yep. product placement and you read two paragraphs and you're like, I have no idea what any of this means. <laughs> we must all efficiently operationalize our strategies. Invest in world-class technology and leverage our core competencies in order to holistically administrate exceptional synergy.
is it software? Yeah. Is it manufacturing? Are you in aerospace? What is this? And yeah. there's they, yeah. they have no clear language anywhere. So yeah, I think Goblin Speak is alive yep. and well on LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, a big part of the reason why I have avoided the corporate world, preferring preferring to go into the field that is far less remunerative. But yeah, having to read that sort of I mean when when I when I did have like a short foray into the corporate I, I worked at a at an HR and compliance hotline for about two and a half years. But we were encouraged not yeah. to use direct speech when a Latin equivalent to a Germanic word it's like the exact opposite of yep. what I learned in English class, right? Yep. The Latin equivalent sounds more impressive to our clients. So we're gonna use that. Gosh. Right. Oh, rather maybe. yeah, rather than dealing with prepositions and things like that. But yeah, it's uh and, and passive voice all the way, man. It's dark. It's, it's straight much from like, hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like looking into the minds and seeing the way the goblins <laughs> work. Up above ground, the princess's king, Papa, comes to visit. She always knows that he's come when he blows this bugle and she comes running and tells him all about her great-great-grandmother. And this again for her, this is the really exciting thing that's happened, right? Not too worried about the goblins. Finding this great-great-grandmother is like Lucy with Narnia, right? He seems surprised. And he says he didn't realize she lives there. So Princess Irene concludes it must have been a dream. And then the king is nervous after hearing Irene was out late one night and leaves six guards behind to watch the palace. And I'm not, I'm never sure if the king at this point, he said he didn't realize the great-grandmother was there, but he doesn't seem like he disbelieves in the great-grandmother. No, um, yeah. If he is outside of belief, like someone who acknowledges, like, I think God exists, but I don't have a personal connection to God, it would be the analogy. Right. Or I've not been called in yet. He gives her this look that she couldn't understand, as you said. Like he responds in a very different way from Ludi, which is straight disbelief and oh, you silly girl. That didn't happen in a kind way for Ludi, but he he takes her seriously. And there's this moment with the dove, with the pigeon flying in and settling on her head. It's very like Jesus baptism time. Yeah. And he goes to, to pat her, right? And he stretches out his hand to take the pigeon, but it spread its wings and flew again through the open window when its whiteness made one flash in the sun and vanished. The king laid his hand on the princess's head, right where, you know, it had just rested, right? Held it back a little, gazed in her face, smiled half a smile and sighed half a sigh. It almost feels like he is longing for that same connection with hmm. the grandmother, with the pigeon, with whatever she represents. But he has not been invited, which is an interesting sort of not a tame lion Aslan calls you into his country when and where he will if this is analogous in some way to fate that is really interesting yeah and this develops more and more as we go on these sort of complicated responses to the great great grandmother you know, I think earlier you were talking about the professor in Narnia, like the professor character and sort of how he responds to the children when they start to discover Narnia. That's how I sort of read the king's response here of like, he might be in on it. Like he might realize the great, great, big grandmother's up to something. It's just, I don't have a role in this story yet. So I'm just going to let Irene do it on her own for now. Like it's not his place to come in and tell her that she's real or not. Irene has to discover that on her own, understanding that something's happening and he just, he can't enter being just yet yeah 
Yeah, I mean, we know there's something odd with the princess's family, right? Um, later on, mm -hmm. Curdie's mother says they're a mysterious family. He seems to believe in her, but yeah, he seems to be, as he says, unaware that she is there. But yeah, or or maybe, uh, as you said, Annika, maybe she he's just like, well, I don't have enough information yet. But he does what every responsible father does. And when he has to go off for business, he leaves behind six soldiers to watch over his eight-year-old, which I think is, that's great. That shows the responsibility. That's right. <laughs> And keeps the careless nanny, the nanny employed. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, oh, can I just say the this description here, too, of when the garden, when they're walking after they had that moment with the dove, the mingling of the wild mountain with the civilized garden uh, was very quaint. That feels to me very Lewis and Tolkien and mm. the desire both for that in Tolkien, the do domesticity of, of the Shire, along with the wildness of going out on the adventure and, and encountering everything. Yeah. And in Lewis, with that same like love for the cottage and the village, as well yeah. as the the wild adventure in Narnia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we t we've talked so much in season one about the homely, how in tune both Lewis and Tolkien were with both kind of uh, the wild joys, right? And then the homely joys that are earthy, right? Cottagey, heaven in a biscuit tin sort of thing can also evoke Zansucht <laughs> as much as Wagner can, right? So the princess encounters the old lady again because she hurts her finger on a brooch. Uh, it's her mother's brooch, interestingly enough. She wanders upstairs, finds the old lady's bedroom. The old lady sort of rebukes her in a not very forceful way about thinking that she'd been a dream and then kind of explains you know, don't try to convince Ludi that that I'm real or talk about her much to me because she can't really help disbelieving in me right now and she also asks Irene to promise to visit her Friday and uh, and she seems like actually concerned that the princess has hurt her thumb which is really interesting and dreamlike she seems just honestly worried about the princess's thumb being hurt by this brooch uh, and we don't really get much as to why that's such a frightening thing well i mean it is a fairy tale and she did climb a stair right and prick yeah. her finger yeah. i mean i instantly thought sleeping beauty yeah. and there's this old woman she doesn't really know yeah <laughs> yeah it's like a better a better uh you catastrophe or you catastrophic version of yeah. sleeping beauty yeah and there's that whole editor's notes and some of the versions where the editor's like no, this is not that because this is a goblin tale, not a fairy tale. And this isn't Sleeping Beauty. And by the way, don't you know there's a difference between a spinning, spinning wheel and a spinning wheel? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is funny. But yeah, it's it's definitely, yeah, I, I love that association. I think that works. She's like, I think you better sleep in bed with me tonight. Um, Irene sleeps in bed with her that night and then she wakes up in her own bed and her hand is better. Uh, gets some interaction between Curdy and his mom. His mother is portrayed as someone who has few words but very deep thoughts and and you know cares deeply and she gives him a ball of string to find his way around the goblin caves from now on right so that when he's like doing his little expeditions into goblin territory he won't get lost and the word for a ball of string is a clue and that is actually where we get the word clue from. And it comes all the way, I don't know if the word itself is Greek in origin, but it comes from retelling the story of Ariadne and Theseus when mm. he has to navigate the labyrinth and she yeah. gives him a clue, a ball of string to find her way in and out. Curdy gets a clue from his mother. Meanwhile, in the palace, the guards begin to see the Cobb's creatures. And the creatures are explained here as being terribly ugly descendants of poor animals taken under 
underground generations ago. Very Gollum-esque. And, mm-hmm. and even like when Tolkien is talking about the fish who disappear under the mountain in that chapter yeah. in The Hobbit. I was thinking also of the inverse or the, the converse of Mr. Bultitude yeah. in that, that hideous strength, right? The sense in, in Lewis, the humans that animals are around affect the animals' souls and that we have a responsibility to them almost for their own betterment and can degrade or raise up then maybe not the same way God raises us up, but with a similar sort of responsibility of you raise up the creatures with which you interact and that awareness of God's love in all of his creation and designs and purposes for all of his creation is really shown in the extreme other end here, right? The subnatural ugliness of their faces. And Chris, like you said, with Gollum and the fish, I like to dwell a little more with Lewis tended to see the the better side of that. It comes out in the great divorce too when Sarah Smith has her parade and he thinks at first he thinks it's a parade for Mary in heaven because it's just so over the top and there are all these people and they're animals it's like the cats that came to her stoop that she fed and the dogs like every animal that came to her she left a little different and a little better yeah. and blessed I love that that power of blessing all creation yeah mcdonald is weird about this though too because because with lewis that makes sense right i mean that that can fit into a kind of model of how human beings have kind of like priestly role for mm-hmm. you know other creatures of flesh and bone right mcdonald's like oh and these creatures are a little more like people than ordinary creatures are and in this like weird twisted island of dr moreau kind of way right it's interesting because because in some ways yeah that parallels lewis but it also kind of contrasts yeah they're clever but they're not better yeah yeah that's true that's true and same with the goblins right they think very highly of themselves but they're not very high creatures does indeed come and the princess Irene gets scared by the fact that they're one of these creatures which is a very very long-legged cat like a cat with legs as long as a horse which is which is creepy comes into her comes into her room while Ludi predictably is out doing who knows what <laughs> princess Irene runs in fright out of the house all the way up the side of the mountain because she's like well I could go to my grandmother's but I could see the legs on that long-legged cat just pursuing me up there quite easily. So she runs all the way up the mountain, and then she sees her grandmother's lamp over the tower, which is like the moon or moonlike or mm-hmm. something like that. And so she comes on back. Everybody's worried about Irene. They don't see her go up the stairs to her great-grandmother's. And her great-grandmother is different when she goes up there. She's not spinning any longer. And there's a fire that's in the shape of roses. again and saw that what she had taken for a huge bouquet of red roses on a low stand against the wall was in fact a fire which burned in the shape of the loveliest and reddest roses glowing gorgeously between the heads and wings of two cherubs of shining silver and when she came nearer she found that the smell of roses with which the room was filled came from the fire roses on the hearth her grandmother was dressed in the loveliest pale blue velvet over which her hair, no longer white, but of a rich golden color, 
streamed like a cataract, here falling in dull gathered heaps, there rushing away in smooth shining falls. And ever as she looked, the hair seemed pouring down from her head and vanishing in a golden mist ere it reached the floor. It flowed from under the edge of the circle of shining silver, set with alternated pearls and opals. On her dress was no ornament whatever, neither was there a ring on her hand or a necklace or a carcanet about her neck, but her slippers glimmered with the light of the Milky Way, for they were covered with the seed pearls and opals in one mass. Her face was that of a woman of three and twenty. The princess was so bewildered with astonishment and admiration that she could hardly thank her, and drew nigh with timidity, feeling dirty and uncomfortable. The lady was seated on a low chair by the side of the fire with hands outstretched to take her, but the princess hung back with a troubled smile. Why, what's the matter? asked her grandmother. You haven't been doing anything wrong. I know that by your face, though it is rather miserable. What's the matter, my dear? And she still held out her arms. Dear grandmother, said Irene, I'm not so sure that I haven't done something wrong. I ought to have run up to you at once when the long-legged cat came in at the window instead of running out on the mountain and making myself such a fright. You were taken by surprise, my child, and you are not likely to do it again. It is when people do wrong things willfully that they are the more likely to do them again. Come, and still she held out her arms. But grandmother, you're so beautiful and grand with your crown on, and I'm so dirty with mud and rain, I should quite spoil your beautiful blue dress. With a merry little laugh, the lady sprung from her chair, more lightly far than Irene herself could, caught the child to her bosom, and kissing the tear-stained face over and over, sat down with her in her lap. Oh, grandmother, you'll make yourself such a mess, cried Irene, clinging to her. You darling, do you think I care more for my dress than for my little girl? Besides, look here. As she spoke, she set her down and Irene saw to her dismay that the lovely dress was covered with the mud of her fall on the mountain road. But the lady stooped to the fire, and taking from it by the stalk in her fingers one of the burning roses, passed it once and again and a third time over the front of her dress, and when Irene looked not a single stain was to be discovered. There, said her grandmother, you won't mind coming to me now? But Irene again hung back, eyeing the flaming rose which the lady held in her hand. You're not afraid of the rose, are you? She said, about to throw it on the hearth again. Oh, don't, please, cried Irene. Won't you hold it to my frock and my hands and my face? And I'm afraid my feet and knees want it too. No, answered her grandmother, smiling a little sadly, as she threw the rose from her. It is too hot for you yet. It would set your frock in a flame. so many great passages in this book and I needed to be judicious unfortunately in, in choosing them but I thought this one was right up there. Yeah, any any thoughts on that passage? I love the little tiny detail at the top where it says the red fire which burned in the shape of the loveliest and reddest rose and glowing between the heads and wings of two cherubim of shining silver. That is such a clear connection to the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. Yep. And again, like we, you spent so much time talking about it the other few episodes ago, like who is this 
grandmother like what is she supposed to represent but this is such a clear line to the presence the the shekinah mm-hmm. the the glory beyond glory the holy of holiest it's so great and it's just a little detail he just like tosses it in there for free connecting this holiness of fire the transforming power of fire the cleansing power of fire mm-hmm. all of that sort of rolls up into that sanctifying power of the holy flame it, it's it's great i love that he snuck that little detail in there and the beauty of holiness the mm. the rose and the the smell. I love that there. I love that Irene's response is don't stop, right? Like it's very Peter to Jesus. Then Lord, not not my feet also, but but my face and my hands and all of me. Wash me. Earlier when um she was running towards the light to get to the grandmother, there was this this moment she knew she had to keep looking at the light. Mm. If she she had to keep the light in view, which is also very Peter keeping Christ right at that focus so that he can walk on the water. I also love, it's got strong Galadriel vibes too. The large oval tub of silver with the the bath. It's so Galadriel's mirror. And when Irene then goes and looks at it, she sees the sky and the moon and the stars, but it looks like there's no bottom. The the Lake of Khazad-dûm too. Mm-hmm. And seeing things that aren't she should be seeing the roof. There's something supernatural here too. And then the the grace of any time you want a bath, you come to me. Yeah. It's safety and refuge and cleansing. And at a time of grace, like when she thought she messed up and she did make a wrong choice, right? Like she shouldn't have run out. That was wrong for her to listen to her fear and her fear. What's the line? That's the way fear serves us. It always sides with the thing we are afraid of, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Her fear worked against her. But the grace of the ball, of the light, and the ability to come back and to have that cleansing and not be shut out from the presence is really gentle and beautiful. Yeah, and just on that same note, just to echo that, I love the when Irene hesitates and she's like, I don't want to get your beautiful blue dress dirty because I'm a big mess. I have mud and dirt all over me. I don't want to get it dressed. I'm unclean. I don't want to make you unclean. The grandmother hops out of her chair. Like just this sweet little detail. She sprung from her chair more lightly far than Irene herself could, caught the child up in her bosom, kissing the tear-stained face over and over again and sat down with her in her lap. Like, what a great, it's just like those little details, like in the story of the prodigal son, how we see that the father Hmm. runs to the prodigal son, that it's Mm -hmm. God the father who is not just pursuing us, but he's beyond our imagination, pursuing and seeking and leaping with grace and like swiftly pursuing us. And then the grandmother just so gracefully swoops her up and cleans her. It's just like, oh, it gives me chill bones. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the there's there's such a power to the repeated line. It's repeated at least twice. And still she held out her arms, right? First mm-hmm. time. And she still held out her arms and the and the second time and still she held out her arms, right? Which is it's the kind of language that you have in a fairy tale where there's just this kind of like repeated line simulating the way it would have been retold throughout the ages, right? And, and you remember repeated lines better, but it's also close to biblical language as well, right? Just what McDonald is doing here, repetition is so cool because it's repetition simulating the kind of eternal readiness Pursuits. of God yeah. to oh, yeah. forgive, right? And and to take in. And it reminded me of, and I don't know that McDonald was, was familiar with, with George Herbert, but it reminded me of George Herbert's Love 3 poem. And it goes, Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, 
sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then, I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Meat in the 17th century context just means meal. You sit down and taste my food. So he's inviting him to the communion table, right? It's such a parallel to this scene told in kind of fairy tale form. says Irene needs to go down back downstairs. She can't stay with her tonight um, because everybody's looking for her and they're all really worried. She gives her a clue as well. So now we're, there are two clues. There's Curdie's clue and there's Irene's clue. But the grandmother has been working on this clue. This is what she's been weaving and spinning this entire time. And she gives it to her and then she takes it away and puts it in her cabinet. Irene's like, well, why'd you give me something and take it away? Are you mad at me? And, and the grandmother says, no, I have this ring for you. It's a fire opal ring. Um, and it has a tiny little strand of this clue attached to it. And you can barely feel it and barely see it, right? And the string is tied to the ring. It's usually too fine to see. But whenever she's in trouble, she can follow the string on her ring back to her great-great-grandmother, though the grandmother predicts she will ask Ludie where it came from the next day and will have forgotten about it. She feels so sorry for doubting her grandmother in the first place that she falls asleep sobbing in her grandmother's lap and wakes up back in her chair. Ludie, on discovering the princess back in her room, is upset and then very relieved to find that the princess Princess is back. Yeah, that's really, uh, I think, where we'll have to leave it for this Inklings Variety Hour. But do you all have any observations about this last scene with the grandmother? Any additional? The grandmother tells Irene, because Irene asks, how how can I see the lamp shine through walls? It shines so strong that I, I see through the walls. That's crazy. And not everyone can see it. How can I then? I'm, I'm sure I don't know. It is a gift born with you. And one day, I hope everybody will have it. Is this about faith or, or relationship or connection to the presence, to God, that it gives you this, it is a gift, right? It's not, Irene was literally born with this, like it, born into this family. Her mother, we, we learned later, apparently had a similar um, experience. The, the ring is her mother's. And yet it's something that the grandmother hopes everyone can have. So Irene is special, but she's where we're all supposed to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder too, you know, about the goblins because, and I, and I mentioned this in the, in the last episode when I was just talking goblins with Cora Burton, because they're a branch of humanity, right? Uh, by McDonald's own sort of theology, there's a plan for them too, even though they're ridiculous and awful, frankly. Uh, that doesn't seem to be something that Tolkien really uh, is interested in either. But uh, but yeah, well, I, I guess you you need to have someone that your good guys can cut their heads off and not feel bad about. I guess yeah, that's yeah. I think that's what the orcs and the the goblins yeah. represent. And those or stomp so stomp their toes. Yeah, really really hard. Um, 
Stay tuned yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry yeah. we didn't get to the toe stomping part, but we will, listeners, we will. Final goofy question. And it is the same question that we had last time, but we have different guests. So I want to hear from both Logan and Annika. What are your favorite portrayals of goblins in movies or shows or other books? And are these goblins, in your estimation, fundamentally different or similar to McDonald's goblins? I'm not sure it's a goblin, but the the creature in the Twilight Zone episode on the wing of the plane that only William Shatner can see. Yeah. <laughs> I love that episode. I... There's a man out there. What? Look, look, he's crawling on... I think of as a goblin. Is it a gremlin? Is it a gremlin? I'm sorry if it's a gremlin. No, no, no. Because we talked about the first episode on Princess and the Goblin. We we actually talked about... Goblins and gremlins are like cousins at most. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I think Bill phrased it as like gremlin is a goblin with a... uh, Stem degree. Yeah, with a stem degree or something (laughs) like that. but uh yeah but they're they're like little mischievous creatures that make trouble for you at your job like if you're a miner those are goblins if you're a pilot those are gremlins or Or if you're a paranoid dude and no one believes you when you're like look on that like this thing is going to crash our plane and no one else sees it your next stop the twilight zone Now, I don't remember that Twilight Zone episode very well. What I do remember is the Bugs Bunny episode where he sees a gremlin outside of his plane. Get a load of this, folks. It says here, a constant menace to pilots are the gremlins who wreck planes with their diabolical sabotage. <laughs> gremlins. There was a Bugs Bunny episode with the gremlin and kind of like, ah, ha, ha, gremlins, that's silly. (laughs) What a fairy tale. (laughs) Little man, oh, brother. (laughs) And there's a gremlin taking his plane apart in World War II because, you know, all the cartoon characters flew missions in World War II, as we all know. Logan, how about you? The first... Thing my brain came up with was the sound of Willem Dafoe's evil goblin laugh from the Spider-Man movie. <laughs> that guy is just a cinematic treasure. They, I think it's very important to note that and the first movie, he wears a mask that's supposed to be scary and intimidating. And then they quickly realize he's much more scary and intimidating without the mask than he is yep, with the yep, mask. Yep. He's He's got a natural-born yep. goblin face. That's even, that's and- a line in the Weird Al song. Of- yes, he's wearing that dumb Power Rangers mask, but he's scarier without it on. He's scarier without it on. Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin laugh in the Spider-Man movie is all-time greatest goblin laugh. Goblins are known for their laugh. Weird, creepy, high-pitched giggling. Mm. Above them all is Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin laugh. <laughs> 
to answer your question of what are some of my favorite goblin movies or shows, I did a quick search leading up to the episode. I checked IMDb, and apparently in IMDb you can look up most popular films or movies with keywords in them. So I looked up goblins. It gives you a whole long list of quote unquote most popular movies or TV shows. So all these shows have goblins in them. And when you go through the list, it's a lot of familiar faces. It's all the Lord of the Rings movies. It's all the Lord of the Rings spinoff. The you know the Hobbit movies, the animated Lord of the Rings movies. It's got Harry Potter, of course, and all the Harry Potter spinoff movies. It's got, of course, David Bowie with The Labyrinth. The world of Labyrinth. It's got Hellboy and a couple other. And the further you go down the list, it gets a little bit more sketchy. It gets a little less Hollywood, a little less successful until you get down to like the sketchy Goblin movies, which included like the Black Cauldron, you know, the 80s movie that nearly sank Disney. Hmm. The Dungeons and Dragons movie from 2000 with Jeremy Irons, which is one of the worst movies ever made in probably the last 20 years. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Let their blood rain from it's the only movie I know of where it's Jeremy Irons and one of the Waynes brothers. It was a weird time in the early 2000s, so go figure. <laughs> um, one of the worst Pixar movies, Onward, is in that list. And then, of course, near the bottom of the list, you get to the greatest worst movie of all time, Troll 2. They're eating her. And then they're going to eat me. Oh, my God. Troll 2 is consistently on the top, like, one or two lists for the worst movies ever made. So I have seen Troll 2 many times. And that's partly, <laughs> that's partly because uh, it was a favorite movie in the Cowan household in which my wife grew up. She introduced me to it, and I love bad movies anyway, having grown up watching Mystery Science Theater. So, yeah, Troll 2 is just, is just great. It's a treasure. Okay, I'll tell my father that you're coming with us tomorrow. Where are we going? Nilbog, a wonderful half-empty town. This is an evil place. It is the kingdom of the goblins. Hey, you. Yeah? Your friend has a message for you. Who? Arnold? Yeah, that's him. He said to meet him in the house that looks like an old church. Just the so, worst dialogue, worst acting, worst everything. If you ever get a chance, for a while ago, anyway, there was a movie called Best Worst Movie about the making of Troll 2 and about the kind of cult following that it's gained since as like the best worst movie. I mean, it's about goblins. There's not a troll in the entire film. It's about goblins. <laughs> they call them goblins. But there's another slightly... Slightly higher, not much, but slightly higher budget production called Troll, which was a horror movie starring a young Julia Louise Dreyfus. They wanted to kind of package Troll with another movie in the VHS package. And so they ended up taking this film whose working title was Goblins and <laughs> changing the name of the film to Troll 2, even though it had nothing to that's, do with the first Troll. That's awesome. Uh, so that's why it's called Troll 2, and it is really, really <laughs> bad. The great moment in the film where they realize that the creepy town they've been invited to, where people are trying to turn them into trees, is full of these goblins, is that they look at the town's name on a sign in the rearview mirror. Neil It's goblins spelled backwards! This is their kingdom! And the town's name is Nilbog. And they look at the side. They look at the side of the mirror and they say, 
Nilbog is goblin spelled backwards. <laughs> and uh, yeah, see, so, and you uh, see, you see where you see where Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick stole that for The Shining. That mm-hmm. they he must have stole that from the you know the movie that came out 15 years later. That's yeah. right. It all Again. connects. It all connects. Um, all right. Now that you talk, now that you mentioned people turning into trees, now I have a whole another one come to mind. I'm fairly certain they're goblins in Ernest Scared Stupid. The Halloween-themed yes. Ernest yes. movie? Monstrous trolls have sprung to life. That's your hope you're from Keebler. And now, Ernest B. Worrell is springing into action. I saw it once when I was probably like eight years old, and I, yep. not to brag, but I'm more of an Ernest goes to jail type person. That Ernest, was a Ernest, critically superior movie than Ernest goes to jail. Yeah, Ernest saves Christmas? It's no? okay. They're all part of the Criterion Collection. Okay, okay? we, we yes. don't need to get into a, a Ernest fight That's here. Right. We're more friends, but yeah, I'm pretty sure Ernest Scared Stupid has trolls running around. They're turning people into trees. They're still in children. He does yeah. something very Ernest-like and saves the day. But yeah, I won't spoil Ernest Scared Stupid. So listeners, make sure to check out Ernest Scared Stupid and Troll Two from your yeah. friends at the. Yeah. Inkling Variety Hour. And, and as long as you're watching bad movies having to do with goblins, you might as well throw in The Princess and the Goblin, which is a movie from 1992 <gasps> adapted from this story, which I had the misfortune oh. of watching this past week uh, with my kids. <laughs> uh, you know, they are more faithful to the plot than I would have thought, but it's still pretty bad. Curdy scares the goblins away by singing Disney type songs about how oh. everyone everyone has a light inside them and No Yeah, yeah. There's a power in every breath. There's a power in every note. A power that starts within the heart, a power that rises through the there's no light inside yeah, it's in yeah. it's in grandmother's room well everyone no. everyone has a light burning deep inside them and then at the end when he when he leads the uh, people in the castle against the goblins they're all singing that song to you know no. to stop the goblin but uh it was not a critical success it was also not a <laughs> commercial success because it came out the same month as the lion king which I believe we already had our sound effect for, so we may need to cut some of this. Yeah, I'll just play it twice yeah. as fast. Well, it certainly can't be said that we at the Inklings Variety Hour don't lead you to the finest <laughs> you know, cultural treasures here in... Uh... I mean, hey, at least I was Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I just want to say, uh, if we get enough support to eventually create a Inklings Variety Hour Patreon or a some sort of subscriber service, Chris and I will be happy to sit down and watch Troll 2. And if we can get Annika there, we will. Yes. I'm just saying. Yes. Not to commit ourselves to it. If, if I'm going to have a reason to watch Troll 2, I'm going to be for the sake of C.S. Lewis and uh, Tolkien conversation throughout the world. Yes. If it's anything like watching Troll Hunter with Chris, it will be uh... really good. Troll Hunters are legitimately good movie though. It is. Are you a Christian? Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the trolls can smell if you're Christian or not, right? So, so they're like, everyone, make sure you're not Christian. If we go into this cave where these trolls are and one guy lied and said he wasn't a Christian, like, you know, like a good Scandinavian kid needs to. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what is this? uh, Is this a, is this a movie? 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like so a Norwegian movie? I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really good. Norway. It's yeah. really good. Like a Norwegian, like they claim them. There's this uh, yeah. artist who made these very famous drawings and paintings of trolls. And it's like, no one, no, no, no. We own Norway, home of the trolls. We mm -hmm. own this. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's a word that, unlike goblin, unfortunately, has a really interesting etymology and history. Uh, <laughs> Uh, although I still enjoyed doing the Goblin episode last time, and I think we found out some interesting stuff. So check that out. Logan and Annika, thank you all so much. I'm so grateful to you both for everything that you've done for this podcast. Thank you for hanging out with me, talking about these chapters of The Princess and the Goblin. Uh, I'm looking forward to continuing through this book. Thank you all again. And listeners, thank you for joining us. I will be traveling to a conference over the next couple of weeks. It may be a couple of weeks until we manage to get another Princess and the Goblin episode out, but we will. We will come back to this book and we will finish it this summer. Hope to have you along for the ride. Yeah. And thank you all. See you next time. All blessed encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. Yeah, also, can we just give a shout out to the fact this is the sesquicentennial of The Princess and the Goblin, right? 1872? Yes! Yes! And that's just a fun word, sesquicentennial. And I, I don't think anyone's celebrating it, but we are here at yeah. Eden's Right. Actually, I go to a thing that I recommend to our listeners. Occasionally on Fridays, there's a thing called Inkling Folk, and they've been celebrating the sesquicentennial of The Princess and the Goblin by reading The Princess and the Goblin together. Uh -huh. It's a really cool community of of mostly scholars of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and I always feel really kind of impostery when I go, but they're <laughs> so nice. Anybody can go by, you know, using Zoom. They have a Facebook group, but it's called Inkling Folk. And actually, after I recorded the first episode of The Princess and the Goblin, I was like, I wonder what Inkling Folk is talking about this Friday. And so I went on and they were reading through The Princess and the Goblin. Wow. Uh, so that was kind of cool. So I didn't know it was the sesquicentennial. I just was like, oh, The Princess and the Goblin. That would be a fun thing to read. But they did. They know. I was going to say, once again, Chris, you had your finger on the pulse. So yeah, you are, That's right. you are the, the epicenter <laughs> of all Inklings appreciation, I do believe. I have my oh, finger yeah. on the pulse of so many things. <laughs> yeah. Completely in the know and always at the center of things.